I just want to footnote what uh, Hardin said about this one-year Bible. We've decided as uh, staff and elders to recommend that we as a congregation read through the Bible using this uh, particular format. Uh, the idea of reading a section from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, Proverbs, and then the Psalm, one of the Psalms, is uh, it's a good scheme to follow. And uh, this is laid out that way, and I think you'll find it very helpful. Uh, I noticed that it's red. Billy Graham says that everybody ought to have a red Bible. That is a Bible that's red. And uh, we'd like to encourage you to read through with us this year. Would you turn with me, please, to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 18. This is the uh, time of the year when everyone is making uh, great vows and resolutions, New Year's resolutions. This is the year that uh, we exercise more. This is the year that we eat more healthful uh, food. This is the year that we start our diet. Uh, I heard someone say yesterday, uh, Monday, I'm going to start a serious diet, is the way they put it. I've heard it all before, and I've made the same vows, and I discover that they don't last very long. They don't work very well. There has to be a better way to vow. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Now, the backdrop of John 18 is a vow that that, uh, Peter made some months before the incident that's uh, recorded for us here in John 18. We we read about that vow in John 13, but I'm going to read Matthew's version of it since it's a little bit uh, more detailed. We read that Jesus said to the apostles, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered, actually interrupted him, and said, Even though all may fall away because of you, that is, all of the apostles, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will never, under any circumstances, whatever, deny you. That was Peter's vow. And what happened to that vow is recorded for us in John 18. Now, we've come to the section of the Gospel of John that describes Jesus' arrest and the trials that followed that arrest. There may have been as many as six trials. We're not certain exactly what took place. John records two of them for us, the political trial before Annas and the civil trial that, uh, that followed. And then shortly afterward, our Lord was taken out and crucified. Let's begin reading about the arrest with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the words recorded for us in John 13 through 17, the upper room discourse followed by his high priestly prayer in John 17, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden, actually an orchard, into which he himself entered and his disciples. Our Lord left the upper room. They made their way through the streets of Jerusalem. It was uh, late in the evening. It was dark. People were in their homes celebrating the Passover feast. The streets were virtually deserted. Our Lord made his way through the city of Jerusalem, down through the ravine of the Kidron. The Kidron was just a dirty little brook that 
Uh, as a matter of fact, the word Kidron means dirty. It was just a stream laden with silt that flowed in the wintertime, and they must have forded the stream and made their way up to the other side where there was an orchard where our Lord and his disciples frequently uh, met. And apparently they were spending the night there since there was no place for them to stay in, in Jerusalem. This was the Passover season. There were literally millions of people in the city of Jerusalem. And it was impossible to uh, find a place to stay. And so our Lord and his disciples bivouacked, uh, camped out under the trees in the orchard. And Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It always strikes me uh, as significant the way the Apostle John refers to Judas subjectively as simply the betrayer. I think John knew that Judas... I'm sure, John, that Judas was just a common man who was led astray by his greed. Uh, Judas wasn't a monster. He was just a man like you and me who loved money. And uh, stands as an illustration of the proverb that the love of money is the root of all evil. It will lead you to uh, betray the Lord, as it did uh, Judas. And now he has received, as John tells us, the Roman cohort that would be a infantry detachment of about 600 men. Uh, the Roman cohort and officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. This was a search party. And there's a real note of irony in all of this. The disciples were asleep. Uh, our Lord was by himself. He was completely alone, unarmed. And uh, the search party uh, of 600 plus there would be the uh, be Roman soldiers as well as officials from the Sanhedrin, as well as uh, curious uh, uh, onlookers who would follow this crowd as they made their way through the streets of Jerusalem. You could almost hear the, the noise and the racket that they would make, their leather squeaking and the armor clanking as they make their way down the into the ravine up to the other side. And they couldn't find the Lord. It was dark. He could very easily have escaped, but uh, he found them. That's the thing that's so striking about this arrest. He, uh, our Lord orchestrated the whole thing. Uh, it would have broken down if he hadn't organized it. The people were running around chaotically and had completely lost their heads. And our Lord puts the whole thing together in a very orderly, dignified uh, way. Uh, it, there's, there's something that John wants us to see as we go through this passage. And we must note it as we read it. It's the contrast between the poise of our Lord and the panic of the Apostle Peter. Our Lord is a picture of dignity and majesty all the way through, and Peter is just forever doing the wrong thing, as, we, as we'll see. Now, uh, Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, that is, none of this caught him by surprise, went forth. He took the initiative. He found them and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, if you have an NASB, you'll notice that there's an asterisk here by the verb. Whenever that occurs in this translation, it means that the present tense is being used. And what's happening here is that John shifts back to the present tense because he remembers what happened. He must have been awakened by the soldiers. He woke up and he heard the Lord make this statement, and it stuck with him. And that's why he shifts into the present tense. Jesus is saying to them, whom do you seek? They answer him, Jesus the Nazarene. He is saying, he, and Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said that to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were so startled by what our Lord said 
that uh, the first uh, rank must have taken a step back and they stumbled over the people behind them and, and they all went down like dominoes. We don't know exactly why, except our Lord does use the name of deity here. In the Old Testament, uh, the name for the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah, as we call him, uh, is taken from the Hebrew verb to be. And uh, there are many, many commentators that think that what our Lord did is, uh, actually what he said is, I am. He didn't say, I am he. If you have an NASB, you'll notice that the he is in italics. He simply said, I am. And this statement was enough to, uh, to frighten this, uh, this uh, contingent of 600 plus. And you just have to visualize this thing in, in, in your mind to see the irony of it all. One unarmed man standing, standing against a Roman cohort plus others. The other the gospel writers tell us that they had clubs in their hands as well as, as swords. This unruly mob, our Lord, with one word, uh, sets them back. They all fall to the ground. Again, therefore, he said to them, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If therefore you seek me, and he emphasizes the me here, if it's me that you seek, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. In other words, he, uh, he offers himself. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these go. And we know at this point they uh, fled. The apostles fled in, into, the, uh, into the night. Except Peter. Good old Peter. Courageous Peter who says, no matter what happens, I won't deny you. And he whips out his little short Roman sword. It's called a Macarius. It's a little short thing about this long, about 18 inches long. And he, he, perhaps he was the only one with a sidearm. But he whips this thing out, and he makes a lunge at someone standing nearby who happens to be an innocent bystander. It wasn't even one of the soldiers. It was a slave of the high priest, which didn't endear him to the high priest, I'm sure, or to the slave. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Now, given the fact that most people in the world are right-handed, and I assume that Peter was, I cannot for the life of me see how he cut off his right ear. You would think his left ear. It just uh, gives you some idea of how wild Peter's swing was. Either he uh, took a shot at this poor fellow from behind, or he swung at his head and completely missed and uh, cut off his, uh, his right ear. We, we laughed, but it wasn't funny to Malchus. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put, put your sword up. Luke tells us he's a physician and interested in these sorts of things that Jesus touched his ear and healed it. And he said to Peter, put your sword away. If I wanted to, I could, I could call forth, actually what he says is 72,000 angels uh, to, uh, to come to my defense. Put your sword up. And uh, then he says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? See, Peter, for all of his zeal, was actually frustrating the Father's attempts to offer up the Son. Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us it was the will of the Father to bruise him. He had to go to the cross. There wasn't any other way to make salvation for us. And Peter was thwarting God's efforts to, to accomplish good, to bring salvation to the world. So typical of my efforts to try to help the Lord out, you know, try to do something to, to uh, uh, affect salvation and usually end up setting the Lord back a few months. Like Abraham, who, who wanted to have a son, a son of promise, and uh, 
disobeyed the Lord, had a son through his uh, through Sarah's slave Hagar, and actually set God's program back 25 years. That's that's our our tendency and our zeal. We usually end up doing the wrong things, and that was true of Peter. Now uh, the scene shifts again. You'll notice the the spotlight focuses on the, our Lord, and then it shifts over to Peter, and then it shifts back to our Lord, and then back to Peter. And you see what he's doing. He's comparing and contrasting the demeanor of these two men. Our Lord who walked through this very tense, difficult situation with complete poise and and dignity. And Peter who just kept losing his head and doing all the wrong things. So so the Roman cohort, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Customary then, just to... To handcuff the person that was uh, that was being arrested, same sort of thing that's done today, and they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Actually, the high priests were appointed for life. What John means is that Caiaphas was high priest that fateful year. That is that that year that Jesus was uh, crucified. Uh, Annas had been the high priest. He was deposed by the Roman officials because they didn't trust him. He was gaining too much power. So they, about 15 years before this incident took place, they removed him and they put up Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and put Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in his place. And so actually, as far as the Jews were concerned, there was still only one high priest. It was Annas, and Caiaphas was sort of a usurper of that position. So they took him first to Annas. They wanted a judgment uh, from him. Uh now we're told that he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, and Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Remember when we talked about that uh, unwitting prediction that he made earlier, and I pointed out that while he, uh, John simply takes it as a prophecy that one man would die a substitutionary death for the whole nation, what Caiaphas meant is that this fellow has to die in order to save the, the, the nation. He pointed out to the Sanhedrin, that if the whole nation continued to follow Jesus as they were doing, the Romans would come and take away their temple. So he said it's expedient for one man to die for the nation. And he meant Jesus. That was his death sentence at that point. And uh, John puts it here, I think, to point out that Jesus didn't have a chance. This was a kangaroo court from the beginning. They'd already decided that he was to die. They were simply trying to find evidence that would convict him in a Roman court. They knew they could not put him to death. The uh, Romans had taken away from them the right of capital punishment. The Romans had to put him to death, so they had to find a charge that, that, that would convict him under Roman law. And we know from many other gospel accounts that they suborned witnesses. They paid people to come and give false witness to, uh, about Jesus, and they couldn't even get their witness together. All this happened in this preliminary hearing before Annas and then later in front of Caiaphas. Uh, someone would, would say Jesus said so-and-so, and then someone else would contradict that, and they just could not get their false witness together. So, the, But, you see, they'd already made up their mind. We're going to kill this man. He didn't have a chance. Now, uh, in verse 15, the, the uh, scene shifts again to Simon Peter, who was following Jesus. And Matthew tells us it was far off. He uh, apparently fled in the darkness after the, uh, his attempt to defend the Lord. And then he came, uh, he found the procession making its way through the city, came back into the procession, and followed uh, Jesus and the uh, Roman soldiers into Caiaphas, uh, the court that was in front of Caiaphas' house. 
Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. That would be John, typically uh, uh, being anonymous. He didn't talk about himself much. Another disciple, John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, which would be either Annas or Caiaphas. We don't know whether John was thinking of the one that, that all Jews thought was the high priest, Annas, or where, whether he was referring to Caiaphas. Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, maid, who kept the door, said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's, there's a real note of contempt there, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And she phrases it in such a way that a, that a negative response is anticipated. In other words, she says, You couldn't possibly be this man's disciple, could you? Peter says, again, present tense, I am not. That's real, really striking and seen in contrast to Jesus' words. Whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. I am he. Are you one of this man's disciples? I am not. Not me. No way, Peter says. See, on, on the one hand, Peter acts in courage, chops off Malchus here, does everything wrong, and here he completely collapses. He gives way to cowardice. Now, the, the slaves and the officers, the Jewish officials, were standing there having made a charcoal fire. Keep that in mind. It's significant later on. For it was cold. It was March. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet. It gets cold in the spring. And they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing in and warming himself. And the other apostles tell us, the other gospel writers tell us, that there was a lot of discussion in the group about who this fellow was. There was one woman who stared at him the whole time he was warming his hands, trying to remember where she had seen him before. And uh, they apparently were discussing among themselves whether this was one of the disciples. And they picked up his brogue. He had a Galilee, the, the Galileans evidently spoke with a bird in their speech, and uh, they picked that up when, when Peter spoke, and they were putting two and two together and began to realize that Peter was one of the disciples. But the, the scene shifts now. We, uh, the stage is set for Peter's ultimate failure, final failure in this instance. The scene shifts again inside the house where the high priest is questioning Jesus. The high priest, either Annas or Caiaphas, we don't know which, Therefore, question Jesus about his disciples. But he, Jesus didn't implicate his disciples. doesn't say a word about them. And about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews came together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Those who have heard what I spoke to, who have heard what I spoke to them, behold... These know what I said. In other words, this isn't some subversive cult that I'm heading. Uh, we don't say one thing in private and another thing in public. If you want to know what I believe, just ask anyone who heard me. I taught in the synagogues. I taught in the, in the temple. Anyone can tell you what I believe and, and what I said. And at that point, one of the soldiers slapped him right across the mouth. When he said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow. The, the word suggests a slap saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered back. Jesus answered him. If I have spoken wrongly, 
bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? See, under Roman law, they presumed innocence until the, the person was proven guilty, just as we do today. In fact, most of our ideas, our legal ideas, come from the Roman Empire. And you, you couldn't brutalize a, a, uh, someone who was charged with a crime. You couldn't beat them. You couldn't beat a confession out of them. And what this man was doing was illegal. Jesus called him on it. You see that? He said, you can't do that. That's not legal. That's not right. This is the same one who said in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, isn't that interesting? He knew what to do in, a, in every situation. He could make his way through this very difficult, tense set of circumstances, and he always knew what to do. When to be strong, when to be active, when to be passive. He was courteous at times. He was bold and aggressive at other times. We'll see that as we make our way through the trial. He just knew exactly what to do. As John says, he was full of grace and truth. He not only said the right things and did the right things, he, he did what he did graciously. He was winsome. He was attractive. You, you would, I would be, all of us would be tremendously impressed with his manhood and his ability to just handle every situation that came up and handle it properly. Such poise and such majesty in a man. You, you just have never seen the likes of it. And on the other hand, there's Peter, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They, as someone within the group, said therefore to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Put again in such a way that it anticipates a negative uh, statement, a denial. He picks it up. He denied it. He said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter probably had to check his sword at the gate when he came in. And uh, he was unarmed. And one of the relatives of the fellow whose ear he chopped off, stares at him and says, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter panics again. The other apostles, the other gospel writers tell us that he swore at this point, he cursed and uttered an oath, and he said, I never knew the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Jesus said, that's what would happen. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. It was uh, coming on toward dawn, and the cock uh, crowed, and we're told that Jesus looked at him. He must have been on the balcony up above the court at this point. And he looked at Peter. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, you have to understand who this man was. He was the head of the apostolic band. As you read through the Gospels, you get the clear impression that this was the man that everyone looked to for leadership. And later was the leader of the apostles. No question about that. All of the Gospel writers record the fact that he, he denied the Lord. They were all astonished by it. This was strong, Peter. And he, on, one, one, uh, on the one hand, he acted in a totally inappropriate way, takes out his sword and tries to kill someone, tries to frustrate, unwittingly frustrate God's efforts to bring salvation to us through the Lord. On the other hand, when you would think that courage was called for, moral courage, he, uh, he completely collapses. He folds. And I, and I say, what, what is the secret of being like our Lord? Here we are on the verge of 1987, and, and we, like our Lord, want to be full of grace and truth. We want to do what's right. We want to say what's right. And we want to do it in an attractive, winsome, 
gracious way? What What's the secret? How do you vow in such a way? I, you know, we, we, I'm always getting the thing wrong. How can I get it right? A.W. Tozer had a description of what he calls right, right gone wrong. He says, there's so many areas in our life where in our effort to be right, we go wrong. When in our determination to be bold, we become brazen. When in our desire to be frank, we become rude. When in our effort to be watchful, we become suspicious. When we seek to be serious and become somber. When we mean to be conscientious and become overscrupulous and meddlesome. We all can identify. You know, we, we want to be the right kind of people. But how do you do it? How do you change? What's the process? Well, I, I want us to go on to the uh, end of the story. Jump ahead to chapter 21, will you? Because these, these two accounts dovetail. You have to see one with the other. I want you to understand how the Lord looks at you and me when we fail. We all fail. We all try hard and we want to do it right but we all fail how does he how does he look at us well he, his efforts are always loving and redemptive and positive he doesn't dismiss us he didn't throw peter away he restored him he had warned peter he said uh, satan has desired to sift you he uses the plural pronoun referring to all the disciples satan has desired to sift you all of you men like wheat in other words, he wants to see if there's anything real there. Is there anything genuine in you? Or is it all just chaff? But he says, I have prayed for you, Peter. He uses a singular pronoun. You, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith might not fail. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Teach them how to succeed. Say, Teach them what you do when you fail. How you handle failure and, and what you do to... Pick yourself up and, and get going again. So his, his intentions toward Peter all along are, are, are loving and good. When he looked at Peter after his denial, he didn't look at him with scorn. He didn't reject him. He looked at him with sadness. And, and, he, and he did what he could to restore him. That's what the Lord does with us. Now, look at what happens with Peter. This is after the resurrection. The disciples are out fishing they see the Lord on the bank, and they pull their boat into shore. And the Lord had done something very interesting. He, he had laid a charcoal fire on the beach. Verse 9. When they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire. And I have to ask myself a question. Why charcoal fire? Well, it brings to mind what happened in Caiaphas' garden. When Peter stood by the side of that fire and failed the Lord, and I think the Lord just built another fire. And it would bring back to Peter those three denials because there are going to be three restorations that the Lord makes. Now, now follow along. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. That's what he called him when he called him at the very beginning. Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? I think more than these disciples. Remember what Peter said when he made his vow? Even if these forsake you, he says... Pointing to the disciples, I will never forsake you. In other words, I love you more than all of these men. They may fail you, but I'll never fail you. Not me. And, and now the Lord says, Peter, do you really, and he uses the word that means that, do you truly love me more than these? And 
Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And we're going to talk more about this passage later when we get into John 21. But I just want you to see the steps that Jesus takes at this point to restore his man. Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs when you are converted, he says. Strengthen your brethren. Now he says, Do you love me, Peter? Oh, you know I love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. Strengthen my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Lead my sheep to pasture. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow cold, you will stretch out... When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. points out that Peter was going to be crucified the same way our Lord was. Peter's life was not easy, yet it hard. And Peter failed the Lord after Pentecost. And he failed him in the same way that he failed him in the courtyard, in Caiaphas' courtyard. Do you remember the occasion? It was up in Antioch, and uh, Peter used to uh, eat with the Gentiles because he knew that the dietary restrictions that, that were part of the Old Testament law had been set aside, so he didn't have to eat kosher. He ate with the Gentiles. Certain Jews came up from Jerusalem, and uh, Peter became afraid, and he wouldn't eat any longer with the Gentiles, started eating with the Jews, eating what the Jews ate. Paul had to stand up in that assembly and correct him in public. He said, Peter, you know better. That's hypocrisy. It was the same sin, basically, that, that he had committed before. He just gave way to cowardice, and fear of what people would think about him, and he folded. So it didn't happen just once. It happened time and time again. This was the, the lead apostle, the man that you would think would, would stand tall and be strong. And he failed. He failed frequently, just as you and I do. But you see, what the Lord saw in Peter was that he really and truly loved him. He he saw the intention of his heart. He really wanted him to. Uh, he really wanted to do what what pleased the Lord. And so the Lord says to him in verse nineteen, though life is going to be tough and uh, you're going to suffer. And he knew that he would fail. He says, Peter, follow me. Follow me. That's the only way I know to change. Paul, Paul says in in. Uh, in one place, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now perfected in the flesh? In other words, we, we get into the Christian life by faith. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. So we just, we just throw ourselves on the Lord. And we accept His salvation. And Paul says that's, that's the way you, you change. That's the way you grow. That's the way you mature or become perfect, as he puts it, in, in the sense of maturation. You just keep on trusting, keep on counting, keep on relying on him. Anything else, he says, is the activity of the flesh. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now perfected in the flesh? And we say, oh, wait, wait. The works of the flesh are sexual immorality and, and lying and deceit and all of those things, bearing false witness. 
But see, what Paul is saying is that there are these evil manifestations of the flesh, but the flesh can be very religious, too. Whenever we say, I'm going to follow you no matter what, and we're counting upon our unaided humanity, we're relying upon our own self-will and our, the strength of our personality and, the, and our own ability to stand and do what God has called us to do. We are acting out of the flesh. And uh, Paul and, and Jesus, remember in John 6, was the one who told us that the flesh... Prophets, nothing. Fizzles. It fails. Looks good for a while. But then we begin to crumble and, and, and at first we realize we're failing. And then others begin to realize we're failing. And then either we erect a facade and try to fake it or we just forget the whole thing and, and give it up and we don't think that the Lord can change us. See, we're, we're, we're vowing the wrong things. We're vowing that we're going to hold our tongue. We're vowing that we're going to manage our money better. We're vowing that we're going to be more loving, more gracious to our mates. We're vowing that we're going to spend more time with our, with our children. And that's just the flesh vowing to be religious. And it doesn't last. What we've got to vow is that we're going to follow the Lord Jesus. We're going to let Him put His finger on those issues in our life that need to be corrected. And then ask Him to change us. Depend upon Him to right the wrongs in your life. That's the only way to change. And when the Lord begins to change us, then we are truly changed and we're able to act as He acts in situations. Not always. There will be failures along the way. Uh, some of you will discover that change is abrupt and immediate. I had a man uh, a few weeks ago who, who told me that he decided that he wanted to quit smoking. It was just, just a habit that possessed him. And he just quit. He just asked God for grace and quit. And he hasn't smoked since, and he hasn't had any problem with it. And I said, please don't tell anybody that. Because I know a lot of people who have struggled for months to stop smoking or stop doing something else. And that's very demoralizing. And that's what God did for you. Give him thanks for that. But, you see, other people grow through more painful stages, and it's tougher and it's harder. But they're still growing. That's the thing. They're changing. And they're changing, not by self-effort, but by grace. As God begins to change them, as you look into the Word, you see the Lord, you appeal to Him for help, you ask Him to change your character. We change, as Paul puts it, from glory to glory, from one attribute to another. There'll be failure along the way, but that's okay. It's all right. What God sees is the intent of our heart, and there will be progress. A lot of progress in some areas, perhaps less progress in others. I don't know why. God has a special program for everyone. He works at different pace with different people in different areas. But you'll begin to change, you see. Uh, a few years ago, I picked up a statement by a businessman in the San Francisco area. <clears throat> it struck me as the kind of thing that, uh, as a description of the kind of change that our Lord makes. He says, Jesus did the most ordinary kind of jobs. It takes... It takes all God's power in me to do the simplest things His way. Christianity is not a way of doing special things. It is a special way of doing everything. Can I talk to a woman as Jesus did? Or ask for a drink of water? Or cook fish? Or walk through my hometown? Or talk to my men? It is bosses and basins and towels and washing feet. The dusty pedestrian duties of life demand God Almighty in us. It takes as much of the power of God for me to go to my office and sit at the desk and talk on the phone as I should. 
as much of God's power to go through my regular routine as it does for others to preach a sermon or write a religious book. An evening with my wife, a golf tournament with my son, an ice cream adventure with my daughter, a conference on financial budgets. I'm not supposed to be a gilt-edged spook with wings making a holy hum. I'm supposed to be a normal, natural, down-to-earth human being full of creation's practical spirit. Now, once we understand that, then we become the kind of men and women that are truly winsome, full of grace and truth. There's a different quality to our life that speaks of our Lord. It speaks to others of his goodness and his capacity to change us. There's no phoniness in it. We can fail and admit it. We don't have to hide. We don't need facades. We don't need to pretend. We can be out front and honest and genuine and transparent. And and the the qualities that he gives us are genuine qualities that others will look at and want to emulate and they'll draw people to the Lord. I don't know any other way to change. I've tried a lot of different ways, but the only way I know to make any change at all is just keep trusting, keep relying, keep hanging on to the Lord, keep depending upon him, keep waiting for him to change you, and he will. And C.S. Lewis, is, in his third uh, children's novel, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he describes uh, the activities of a little boy named Eustace, Eustace Scrub. That's a great name, Eustace Scrub. Uh, he was a very mean little boy, very bad little boy, because, as Lewis puts it, his mother used to read him economics books instead of fairy tales. <coughs> and uh, he was a very greedy little boy. And he turned into a dragon. And, of course, uh, he was distressed at being a dragon, and he kept trying to pull the scales off. He had these ugly scales all over his body. He kept pulling them off, and every time he pulled off a scale, he found another, another scale underneath. He, he couldn't, couldn't become a, a little boy again until Aslan came, and he, he sunk his terrible claws, as Lewis says, into the little boy and scraped off the, the scales and... And he took the little boy and tossed him into a magic fountain, and he came out a new little boy. That's what our Lord wants us to do. Every time we pull off a scale, we'll just discover something more loathsome underneath. We can never change by ourselves. The flesh profits nothing. But when the Lord gets his hands on you, then he'll change you. You, like, like the Lord, will be full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Let's stand together as we pray. And as God's people, let's commit ourselves to him for for this year. We've got a a new year ahead of us. Chance to begin afresh. Every day, as a matter of fact, is a new beginning. Everything he says is becoming new. We can begin today to change. Ask the Lord to put his finger on the the matter in your life that, that bothers him. Very often there are things in our lives that bother us because they make us uh, unpopular or uh, hurt us in various ways. And we want those things dealt with, and we don't understand why, why the Lord is not doing anything about those troublesome sins in our lives. But it, it, it may very well be that it, there's some other issue that he's got his finger on, and he's waiting a while to deal with that sin that bothers you. There's one that bothers him far worse. And uh, he'll put his finger right on it. Those vague feelings of guilt do not come from the Lord. They, they come from the enemy. When the Lord wants to deal with us, he's always very, very specific. 
So let him put his finger on the issue in your life that needs to be changed. And ask him to begin to change you there. To change you from one degree of likeness to him to the next. And then to go through your life room by room. And make each of those rooms presentable for him. A place where he can dwell. And fully manifest his character. Lord, we're thankful for all these fresh beginnings. How terrible it would be if we had to carry around day after day the the accumulation of of guilt and debt that that we acquire. How good it is to know that we are forgiven afresh every moment and that every moment is a new beginning. Lord, we very much want you to change us into your, into your image. We know that that's your desire. It's ours as well. We want people to, to see through us and see the Lord. Make that true. Help us to cling to you and trust you and count on you, rely on you today and through this year to make us the kind of men and women that, that you've purpose that we will be. We thank you for loving us, even through our failures, our big failures. We thank you that that those failures in no way disqualify us, that we can be forgiven. We thank you for that forgiveness. And help us through the year to strengthen our brothers. When we see others that that need to... uh, uh, that, that need help along the way, that need to have their eyes directed toward you. Help us to do that for them. We thank you again for your grace to us, for everything that you are. We commit ourselves to you for this new year in Jesus' name. Amen.